And so for a lot of people who are seeking, um, this is, particularly Christians that are seeking, who, who you know think that there must be something to that, this is something they can tie into. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Disciple Types podcast. I'm Dave, and this is my brother, Andrew. Hi, everybody. On our last episode, we took a deep dive into the theory behind the Disciple Types, and there was so much good material, we decided to break it into two parts, and this is the second part. So to begin, Andrew, why don't you do a quick recap of the key points we discussed? Sure. So the whole purpose of the Disciple Types is to help us understand our personalities from a biblical perspective. The first thing we wanted to do is look at what the Bible and Scripture tells us about who we are as people. So going back to Genesis is where we find our start, and we see that we are made in the image of God. So that means that we are not the exact representation of God, but we are reflections of God, mirror images, if you will. But the fall has caused us to be distorted mirrors. We're not perfect mirrors reflections of God, but we are distorted or cracked. And so we wanted to try to understand what our personalities would be if we were more perfect, like Christ is perfect. So to do that, we have to try to understand what Christ's personality was like. And the best way for us to do that is to look at the Gospels. Now, then we uh, took a look at, you know, why there are four Gospels, why there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John instead of just one Gospel harmony. And we found that the early church fathers were pretty explicit about why there were four, that there's actually four aspects of Christ that are illuminated through the four different Gospels. And those four aspects correspond to the four living creatures that surround God's throne in Revelation and also appear in Ezekiel's vision, in Ezekiel chapter 1. And those four living creatures are the man, the lion, the ox, and the eagle. So St. Irenaeus explicitly said that the symbols of those creatures correspond to the four different Gospels. So from that, we can say that Matthew is represented by the man, Mark is represented by the lion, Luke is represented by the ox, and John is represented by the eagle. And for much of Christian history, those connections have been known by the term tetramorph. That's right. And you can see these connections between the living symbols the living creature symbols and the gospel writers in in numerous places through history. You can see it in architecture. Uh, you can see it in stained glass windows, in illuminated manuscripts. It's really ubiquitous throughout Christian history to see these gospel writers connected to these living creatures. Hmm. So last time you outlined for us how this tetramorph iconography connects to an interesting concept from Methodism called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Remind our listeners what that is. Sure. The Wesleyan Quadrilateral is a concept not actually written by John Wesley himself, but taken from some of his writings. And it basically tells us four different ways that we can understand religious truth. And those four ways that are taken from his writings are tradition, which is uh, looking at all of the history of the great writers and thinkers throughout Christian history um, and, and things that they've said and written and practices and rituals that have been passed down. They form Christian tradition. The second way is personal experience. And so that's, if you think about it, that's like everything you see in your life, uh, people you talk to, things you uh, have seen, 
uh, miracles you may have witnessed, those are all experiences that build to your understanding of truth. The next one is reason, and that's using logic to discern things about our world, uh, to understand uh, anything from finding inconsistencies in, in theology to understanding how it, it applies to science. And the last one is actually a little twist on uh, the Wesleyan quadrilateral that I, I took. The, the fourth corner is actually uh, scripture, but I look at how scripture can be divinely inspired and, and canonical, meaning official scripture. Mm -hmm. And then I look at other ways that it can be uh, we can be personally divinely inspired through revelation. So my fourth quarter of the of the quadrilateral is actually called revelation. So to summarize, we have tradition, experience, reason, and revelation. And scripture there is revelations that are received and then made into are elevated as part of scripture. And so I actually think of the quadrilateral as kind of a pyramid where scripture is way up top. And tradition, experience, reason, and revelation form the base of that pyramid. Mm -hmm. So how do the four points that you just outlined, the four points of this Wesleyan quadrilateral, and then the four symbols connect to the corresponding gospel writers and their books? This is where it gets really fascinating for me. Um, this is uh, I looked at each of the gospels, and I did some textual analysis of them, to see how the gospel writers were using those four different aspects of the Wesleyan pyramid and how that relates to how they portrayed Christ in their books, as well as how they actually wrote the books themselves. And so I'll give you some examples of how, how, how each gospel writer ties into each of the tradition, experience, reason, and revelation. Uh, and Matthew, we already mentioned that he is represented by the symbol of the man. And the man is connected to tradition because it's the ways of man. It's the things, the rituals of man that are passed down, the norms and institutions that men create to bring structure to their lives. And, it, and importantly, it, it's how they share those traditions together. And so Matthew really takes a, a focus on tradition because he's writing to a Jewish audience. So if, if you think about how Matthew begins, it begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And it goes from the past to the present. So it's putting extra emphasis on the beginning. And he starts with Abraham, and he brings it all the way down to Christ. So he's saying that Christ is the inheritor of this long lineage of Jewish tradition. And that makes him, because he's from uh, uh, the line of David, it makes him a king. And so what we see is that the structure and the authority granted by the government and, and the, uh, the ruler of Israel is all about forming a tradition that can be shared by the Jewish people to give them structure and order. So the law is very important. And, he, and you, you might remember that Matthew is the book where he has Jesus say, the law is not abolished, but I fulfill the law. So he's saying that the law is still important, but it's not as important as Jesus. So that's a very key theme that is found in Matthew, that he does not abolish the law, but he actually— So what we're seeing is Matthew is saying that Jesus is the tradition. Everything, ever, All the traditions come to a point, and the whole purpose 
is to look forward to Jesus. Uh, and, and the way Matthew does this uh, throughout, um, you know, he mentions, he references the Old Testament about 68 times, way more than anyone else. He, he talks about prophecy being fulfilled at least 10 times. So for Matthew, it's very important that Jesus be portrayed as a, as a just king, a person who is truly an Israelite. Um, and that, that is his emphasis, that he became a man and he was one of the people. But he was more than just one of the people. He was the true king. So that's how Matthew relates to tradition. But we can then look at Mark. Now, Mark is represented, if we remember, by the lion. And the lion connects to experience when we look at the Wesleyan quadrilateral. So Mark's gospel is fascinating because it's the, it's the shortest gospel. And we now think that it was the first gospel written. Hmm. And the reason we think that is because it was, we believe, taken down as a transcript or very, a variety of transcripts of speeches that Peter was giving as he was going around testifying to what he had seen. So really, Mark is all about giving a firsthand account of someone who was there for just about every big moment, and that's Peter. So we're tr when we read Mark, we're seeing Jesus through Peter's eyes. We're hearing his words through Peter's ears. So everything in Mark is like a present tense story. And, and there's, a, there's a word that Mark uses. It's a Greek word, and it's called—I'm not really sure of the pronunciation, but I think it's uthis, and it's used 41 times. And that's spelled E-U-T-H-Y-S in English. Uh, and what that translates to is at once or immediately. So if you read if you read Mark, you're hearing him say, and then and then immediately, immediately this happened after this. So it's all about uh, a high octane present tense story going at full speed. And Mark doesn't have any time for talking about uh, the the virgin birth. He doesn't talk about where Jesus came from at all. He doesn't talk about his, his the genealogy. He jumps right into it. He has John the Baptist, there he is, and he's announcing Jesus, and then we're off to the races. Jesus is you know, healing people, he's casting out demons, he's doing all sorts of stuff. And so Jesus is really portrayed as a powerful miracle worker in Mark. And, and one of the interesting ways that, that I feel that Mark uses Peter's experiences to portray Jesus as if we are really there and seeing him and hearing him is in the story of Jesus' healing of the deaf and mute man. And I just love this, so I'm just going to read it. And this is in uh, Mark chapter 7. Some people brought to him a man who was deaf and hardly able to speak, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. So Jesus took him aside privately, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. And looking up to heaven... He sighed deeply and said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. Immediately, the man's ears were opened and his tongue was released and he began to speak plainly. And the reason I like that passage is because it's very tactile. It talks about how Jesus is touching someone. He talks about the spit and, and the, way he, the way he places his hands on him. 
and fingers into the man's ears. It's very specific. So you can actually see this image way more than uh, than really the other Gospels to actually get a feel for what actually happened. And I love that Mark quotes this almost magical word, be opened. Ephetha. And you just get a sense of, man, this is really happening. And so that's how Mark really portrays Peter's experience in a firsthand way by using the senses to put us in Peter's seat to really mm-hmm. uh, feel it and see it. Uh, and so that that's that's one method. That's an example of how Mark is using experience primarily to portray Jesus as a powerful miracle worker. The next gospel going in order is Luke. And Luke was a physician. He was writing a long time after these events happened. And what he's doing is he's investigating what had happened. And it, very beginning of Luke, he says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So he's saying at this point when, when Luke is writing, the church already exists. People are already starting to come up with uh, theological explanations for these real events that took place. And Luke is saying, I want to take all the primary sources, I want to take all the witnesses and all, all the things that have been written down, and I'm going to examine them with a critical eye, and I'm going to decide you know, the best that I can so that other people can trust it, what, it, what we know for certain. And so that's Luke really using his reason to say, okay, I, I have all these different sources, I've been told these things, but what do we know for sure? That, that's a that's a skeptic's mindset who really wants to understand. And that, that's the real value of Luke, that he's using his reason. And at the same time, he's portraying Jesus as a wise priest. He's portraying the reasoned side of Jesus himself. And the way we can sort of get a sense of that is that Luke has Jesus tell way more parables uh, than any of the other Gospels. He, he has 18 parables that are unique to Luke that are not in any other gospel. And two of my favorites are one of those that are unique to Luke. That's the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. And those are probably the most popular or the most well-known. So Luke is really portraying Jesus as the wise priest, and he's using his own reason to achieve that. And lastly, we have John. And John starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Beautiful, beautiful words. But they're a little obscure. They're, they're, they're mystical. They're not exactly uh, you know, defining what exactly John means by that. He's giving a sense of, of who Jesus is from a very spiritual perspective. And so when we read John, we see a very relational, emotional uh, perspective of Jesus. We, we have more conversations between Jesus and individual other people, not giving speeches, but having one-on-one conversations. That's what John is all about, mm-hmm. getting to know the people around Jesus and getting to know Jesus as he interacts with those people. And this, uh, you know, divine, sublime uh, conversations and experiences that the people are having with Jesus um, in ways that aren't exactly, you know, uh, logical. They are sort of mystical in their sense. The, the, the Last Supper is quite a long discussion of 
interacting, seeing relationships between Jesus and his disciples, and learning about these these divine truths, which almost defy understanding, and talking a lot about the Spirit. Um, and that is basically how the four Gospels and their writers tie into that idea of the Tetramorph and the Wesleyan Pyramid. So, Andrew, I just wanted to share uh, something that happened in my life after we recorded the last podcast. You know, we were talking a lot about the Tetramorph and how it's central to some of the ideas that you've discovered when trying to develop your idea of disciple types. And mm-hmm. so I'm I'm live streaming this pa- uh, couple of Sundays ago, live streaming uh, the service at my church because that's what we do in this time of Corona. And he's going through the book of Revelation. And I was shocked to hear him specifically outline all four of the animals in the tetramorph. I don't recall if he actually used the word tetramorph, but we had just gotten done saying we've never heard this mentioned in church. We've never heard this referenced. Um, And there he is using it to illustrate some points in the book of Revelation. That's wild. It is. And he... He's talked about the tabernacle, the, the the tent of meeting, and the way in which the tribes, the four tribes of Israel, were arranged around the tabernacle. Did you discover any link between the animals and the tribes? Okay, so you uh, you're referencing the tabernacle after they came out of Egypt and how they were they they started to encamp around the tabernacle. Okay. Right. Yes, actually, uh, it's really fascinating, and I wasn't actually planning on diving this deep into that, but there's a, uh, a lot of connection between the Tetramorph and the tribes and the tribes and, and really sort of ancient astrology, if you will. So basically, the, each, each of the tribes situated around the tabernacle had a banner. And to the best of our understanding now, it's not explicitly said in all of them, uh, the banners had symbols on them that we believe in some way referenced the, the, the 12 zodiac signs, um, but certainly referenced many of the animals from the tetramorph. So it, it's listeners will probably be aware of at least Judah and the lion of Judah. So the Judah's symbol was the lion. And that's referenced in also um, the blessing that Jacob gives to his sons, mm. as well as Moses's blessing to the the different tribes mm-hmm. so it, it the theme of those blessings they almost read like um sort of mystical horoscopes prophecies about what will happen to these sons or, or to these tribes using a lot of symbol uh, symbology and so equating them to uh either animals or or uh different archetypes that we can really see have a lot of reference to constellations in the sky. When we talk about astrology, some listeners are saying, okay, where is this going? <laughs> and it, it does not give any credence to the idea that what sign you're born under determines anything about your life. It's not about that. The zodiac in the ancient world was incredibly well-respected and important. The people who, who studied the constellations were viewed as the most brilliant people they were the scientists of their age. Mm-hmm. 
It was basically the Zodiac explained so much about the world, uh, for everything from the time of harvest, how the seasons are changing, uh, to trying to predict events or explain people's behaviors. It's almost like the equivalent for us today of, of genetic research. People who say, oh, the genes can unlock and explain so much about human behavior and why we do what we do. That's how people who studied astrology in the ancient world were viewed. They were viewed as the most brilliant, most important people. Pharaohs and kings would look to these people to predict what's going to happen, to explain the world. So when the Old Testament references the Zodiac in any way and connects it to Christ or to God or to the tribes, it's really saying, yeah, God created the Zodiac. He is above all of that. Mm -hmm. And he created it as a symbol of him. So it's really no surprise that that the zodiac would be connected in all of this. And really, there's a lot of uh, a lot of suggestions, a lot of research that says that Ezekiel, which is the first mention of of the tetramorph in scripture, he was writing in exile in Babylon, hmm. and the Babylonian zodiac consisted of four uh, main constellations, and those tie specifically into the tetramorph. So Leo the lion, in, in, in the way we talk about Leo mm -hmm. today, we call him mm -hmm. Leo, and Taurus the bull. And Aquarius was the water barrier, or the water carrier, so that would be the symbol of the man. And the fourth one, I can't, it, I can't remember exactly what it is. I'm not an expert on the zodiac, but it ties into the eagle. I believe it's Scorpio, which in the ancient world had some similarities to an eagle. And so basically, it's really fascinating to see the Old Testament referencing things that were very widely known and respected in the other cultures in which the Jewish people were uh, interacting. And we actually see this in Joseph's visions of his brothers. He has two dreams. One dream is about his brothers being like stalks of wheat bowing down before him. So that's a direct reference to uh, harvest time. And he has another vision another dream about his brothers being stars and his father and mother being sun and moon bowing down to him. And this causes a lot of problems for him, a lot of resentment from his brothers. But the point is that the tribes being 12 are explicitly connected to the Zodiac. And not to say that the Zodiac is above God, but rather that God is above, uh, above the Zodiac. Right. That the Zodiac was placed in the sky such that we would, and, and the passage of... of of time of the year would all point us to God. And that's the significance of the number 12 when it comes to the tribes. And of course, that's what leads us into there being 12 disciples. Hmm. Why did Jesus select exactly 12 disciples? Well, it was a clear callback. Everyone would have understood that it was a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. So you just mentioned that the tribes correspond to the tetramorph. Do the disciples also correspond? Well, that was a big question for me, uh, and certainly I, I was hoping that would be the case. And so based on the fact that the tribes were connected to the Tetramorph, I thought, and, and the fact that the disciples uh, are a clear callback to those tribes, that there would be some sort of connection. And so as I dug into what I could find about the disciples, sometimes I could find a lot of material, like with John. Mm -hmm. He wrote multiple books. Right. He's got stories about him. With Peter, he also wrote letters, um, and there's plenty of information about him. Matthew wrote a whole book, so you can learn a lot about him from that. But then you've got people like Nathaniel, where there's one story. 
or Philip, where there's just a handful of like short little anecdotes about Philip. So I really tried to look at that and say, what are the themes that are coming through uh, that are being presented about these disciples? And, and really, I did find patterns that were tying into these aspects of tradition, experience, reason, and revelation. And, and you could clearly see one theme for each goss, uh, for each disciple mm. that would connect to those primary aspects. Mm-hmm. And it should be said that no person is all one aspect. No one is just tradition. Right. Everybody has a little bit of all four of those aspects in them. And that's illustrated by the Gospels themselves. So if we go back to the Gospels real quick, um, when Matthew was writing his Gospel, he was his fundamentals was all about tradition. He was mm-hmm. looking at tradition, but what he was he was using his reason to examine and think critically about those traditions. He wasn't just ex- accepting them at face value. He was saying, "Yes, this is what was prophesied, and then this is what happened." And he's using reason to demonstrate that. For Mark, writing uh, down what Peter was saying, experience was clearly the the basis of, of that gospel. But, but under all of that is this excitement, is this, this revelation, this focus on something huge and otherworldly is happening. Because it's not just uh, physical actions that Jesus is taking. He's not just strong. Mm-hmm. He's performing miracles. He's tapping into the spiritual. And it right. talks a lot about casting out demons. So for, for, for Mark, it was experience first, but backed up by revelation. Right. For Luke— it was all about reason for him. He was investigating and trying to think critically about it. But he was basing his investigation on the traditions that had been handed down. And then for John, revelation is key. Uh, he wrote the book of Revelation. He talks about a lot of spiritual aspects. But underneath all of that is his actual firsthand experience that he had with Jesus. He, mm-hmm. he was you know, very close to Jesus, sitting next to him during the Last Supper. And so we see that there's multiple themes going on in the Gospels. So my hypothesis was that there would also be multiple themes going on for each of the disciples. And that's exactly what we see. We see a primary aspect, Hmm. one of tradition, experience, reason, and revelation. And then we also see a secondary aspect, uh, also choosing from reason, revelation, tradition, experience. And what we notice is that Uh, Tradition and experience have something in common. They both look at the external world. So someone's saying, my experience is about what is happening to me as I go about this external world. Mm -hmm. Tradition is also about the external world. It's what am I receiving from my culture, from my family, from the structures that I'm within? What am I receiving from the external world? Mm -hmm. And that that goes from everything from uh, finances to language, uh, all these things are received. They're not actually uh, uh, logical necessarily. Sometimes they're based on logic, but money and and rituals and language are all received traditions mm-hmm. that are shared by a given uh, group or culture. Mm-hmm. Passed on. Exactly. And so, so tradition and experience are both externally focused. But then we look at reason and revelation, we see that they're both internally focused. It's what is being revealed to me in this moment. The experience is one thing, but the revelation is something that is personal to me that occurs uh, internally. So, for example, when you had that that fascinating experience uh, 
at, at when you were live streaming the sermon, mm-hmm. the experience was there's a pastor who's talking about the tetramorph. Right. And everyone is having that same experience. Mm-hmm. Everyone is hearing what the pastor is saying. But for you, you're having a revelation. You're having a moment of inspiration because, hey, we were literally just talking about that and mm-hmm. not just talking about it. We were saying that no one ever talks about it. Right. And then this pastor goes and proves us totally wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, that people are talking about it. Right. And I love that. Right. And to and me, that, I, to me that, that increased the veracity of our discussions because we know that, um, that this that part, of, part, of your, uh, part of your discovery and claim is that this is something that has been there and therefore has credence. And to have pastors using it as an illustration is lends uh, power to uh, these concepts. I find it very encouraging. Yes, exactly. It, it, it's not you know I'm not crazy. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, and and, and yeah, and so that's and so and it's fascinating how these these things interplay. So the pastor is drawing from tradition. So he's drawing from ancient tradition mm-hmm. from the Christian history mm-hmm. to bring this. And then you're experiencing it, but really what you're taking from it is this revelation that this is a, this is something being spoken to you because you, we were just talking about it. It has a right. special meaning to you, and that's, mm-hmm. so that's what revelation is. Mm-hmm. It's what it means to you, mm-hmm. and, but it's not logical. So the mm-hmm. other piece of that is reason, how we use logic internally to say, okay, I have these experiences. I receive these traditions. But what can I say about them logically? Do they make sense from an objective perspective? Not necessarily do they have personal revelatory meaning to me, but what do they do they are they coherent? So we're are applying they logically consistent. We're taking something that you know the secular world, you know, we would use the words coincidence or serendipity to explain something like that. And um, but we're applying logic then to almost testing the revelation against logic yes yes in a way because it's it the revelation is say this has specific meaning to me uh and reason would then say well what what might that meaning how does that meaning apply mm-hmm. um and so yes exactly so so reason and revelation are both internally focused things we receive things we experience how do we make sense of them do we make the sense of them from a logical perspective or from a personal meaning and emotional perspective. And that's right. the difference between reason and revelation. Mm-hmm. So so what we look at is we see in the gospel writers, um, we see in the disciples, we see a primary aspect that is either external or internal. Mm-hmm. You're either, if you're externally focused, you break down either tradition or experience. You What is you receive from your culture or what is ex, uh, what you experience firsthand? And that's your external. But then you would back that up with something internal, how you would process that and make it make sense. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Matthew is receiving a tradition, but he processes that through his reason. Hmm. Mark is is experiencing Peter's speeches, and Peter is experiencing these things firsthand, but he's processing and making sense of them via his revelation what it meant personally to him. And Luke is using reason primarily to do all this investigation, but he's basing it on tradition, which is external. And John is 
is experiencing all these sublime revelations mm -hmm. and writing them down in this poetic language. But ultimately, it's rooted in the fact that he was there and he saw it. But he's not just saying, hey, I saw this. He's saying, this is what it meant to me. He didn't start out and say, hey, I was there and I saw John the Baptist point him out. And then we did this, we did this. He doesn't even mention himself mm -hmm. because that's less important than the meaning of Jesus to John. And so mm -hmm. what we see is a primary aspect will be either internal or external. And then your secondary aspect will be the opposite. If you were external for primary, you'll be internal for, for secondary and vice versa. Um, and that's not what I expected, um, hmm. but it makes some sense if, you, if you're someone who dabbles in horoscopes or the zodiac uh, and, and thinks about uh, you know, the, the different signs. There's fire signs and, and water signs, and those are opposites. So you can think of that as like reason and revelation are opposites. Mm -hmm. And so you would not be a fire sign and a water sign. You may have fire sign mixed with oh, earth right. sign. And again, I don't, I don't subscribe to these theories, but they're, they're fascinating as uh, to understand how ancient people would have understood personality. Right. And so we have to acknowledge that because that all of modern psychology is ultimately based on what came before. Sure. Because that that's the tradition. But then we sure. can we can apply our reason and revelation to make sense of it. And so that that's how the disciple types are formed with a primary aspect and a secondary aspect that define our personalities. Hmm. Not everything about our personality, but that's how we can think about ourselves in the context of being images of God. Mm -hmm. So to recap, because I know this is a lot of information, mm -hmm. we are images of God, mirror image reflections of God, but the fall has shattered our mirrors. We're distorted. Mm. And so we are not exactly in correct proportion. So God has all of these aspects in spades. He's, he's, he is these aspects. Mm -hmm. He is tradition. He is experience. He is reason. He is revelation. All of these things. And Christ is also these things as represented by the Gospels. But we, imperfect humans, we are not all of these things. We take bits and pieces of them and we accentuate them out of proportion from the way God, in perfect balance, represents them. Mm. So, you know, people will emphasize tradition and then uh, someone else will emphasize experience and there'll be a conflict there. Um, and so that's really, you know, looking at how we can say this disagreement that we're having is based on our personalities. And I could be because I, I you know, fish don't know that they're wet. This is just right. the way this is the way the right. world is. But if we could step back and say this disagreement is based on a personality, and neither one of us has the quote-unquote best personality. Right. Christ, God, is the best personality. Right. But that doesn't make my personality wrong. It makes me have a piece of the puzzle. So to say that your personality is the way it's got to be, that my preference for interpreting scripture or interpreting a certain rule or, or, or social norm at church or in, in society is exactly right. You already know that you're wrong as soon as you said uh, my way or the highway. Right. You know you're not, you know you're not uh, the whole story. Right. We need each other. We need each other to balance each other because that's the only way 
that, that we can be that one body that Paul's talking about. It says we each have a part to play. That's excellent. That's really, really interesting stuff. As you're talking, I'm thinking, I was thinking exactly that, the way you tied it together, is that this is a way of understanding what the body looks like. Now, we also have, of course, uh, often people explicate this idea of the body of Christ by using the, the, the fruits of the Spirit or the giftings. And yet we also have this is in place as well. What what I find interesting as I've listened to you and also followed up by looking into scripture, that this is present alongside those of uh, those uh, those other scriptural ways of understanding the term body of believers. Right. Yes, the spiritual gifts are are a part. They they can overlap with the disciple types. This, the disciple types does not replace those uh, spiritual gifts. They can be bestowed to anybody, uh, right. and, and, and regardless of personality. Right, and that's one thing that's interesting to me is you have these layers, but I'm becoming more and more convinced that alongside the fruits of the Spirit and the giftings, there is also this less overt but still very present dimension to the idea of what the body of Christ is and what it should be. But yeah, it's more nuanced. Right, and I think I think part of the reason for that is that the language wasn't there to to really express what what the ancient wisdom was trying to get at. Yeah. So we talked about how the zodiac was there to base it was it was basically ancient psychology. Right. But we only had archetypes and symbols to basically describe these things. We didn't really have the in-depth research about what personality was really like. Right. And so for a long time in the Christian church, it was basically, here's the tetramorph. And it was huge. Yes. People, you know, the tetramorph is just, it's, it's just everywhere. And then that fell out of favor around the time, I might say, of the Enlightenment. It was pretty big in Renaissance art. But so around the, the Enlightenment, the symbology just wasn't specific. It just didn't fit with what peop, what was the rage in the intellectual circles. Hmm. And to me, it was definitely, not explicitly, but implicitly replaced by Methodism. Hmm. And this idea that we're no longer going to focus on these symbols because they're just not specific enough. We're going to get real specific with with the method. Yeah, and you'd, and, like, you'd like to know if they actually had that discussion. Of, I, you know, let's ditch I, these symbols; they're too esoteric, and let's get down to something more concrete. I'm sure. I'm sure that there was a lot of resistance to people to the zodiac itself, uh, mm-hmm. saying this is you know this is pseudoscience. This mm-hmm. does not fit into you know mm-hmm. what we're doing now, and it is pseudoscience for sure. Um, Isn't it interesting that it still exists though as a as a mode of underst- as as something that people actually turn to to better understand themselves and the world. There's a desperate need, I think, of people to understand why they are how they are and what that means in relationships and in everyday life. Absolutely. And, and it's, a, it's a human reaction to, you know, the romanticism was a reaction against the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that, you know, not everything can just be boiled down to rationality. Right. That the divine, you know, you're right. There's the divine, there's the connection with nature mm-hmm. and all of this stuff. And actually spiritualism became a huge thing in the 19th century yep. as a reaction against enlightenment. A resurgence. So, ex- exactly. And so we see this and it happened again in the 60s. Yep. It goes in waves. And so, but yeah, this idea, the Zodiac is just very persistent. 
And so for a lot of people who are seeking, um, this is, particularly Christians that are seeking, who, who you know, think that there must be something to that, this is something they can tie into. Right. I know, I know a lot of Christians are, are exploring and, and thinking about the Enneagram, um, mm-hmm. which I think has, has uh, value to it, but a little bit less history, a little bit less basis in, uh, in actual scripture that we can point to. So the mm-hmm. goal here is to say, how can we understand each other? How can we understand ourselves and how we interact with each other? And to be explicit about it and to, to give some sort of form to it and yet still be firmly rooted in Scripture, both yes. in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, both in the Gospels, the letters, as well as prophecy. Mm-hmm. And so that that's really the goal. And I hope that our listeners uh, really took something from this to be able to say, OK, I have a, I have a better understanding of the theory behind this. And as as we go into uh, doing individual podcasts for each of the disciples, yes. which I'm really excited about, um, we'll do you know a, a little bit briefer versions as well as deeper dives into each disciple. Hopefully, you can really take a lot from that, learn about yourself, learn about other people, and really help us strengthen and and heal this body. And with that, I think we will wrap up this podcast, the second in our two theory podcasts. I know I'm looking forward to moving ahead and talking about each disciple type and learning more about my disciple type and about the disciple types in my life. So until next time, I'm Dave. And I'm Andrew. Please subscribe if you enjoy this podcast and share it with your friends. He sighed deeply and said to him, <laughs> what did I say that wrong? I, I don't know, but it certainly didn't sound right. It didn't sound. Hold on, it, it's spelled E P H P H A T H A, which sounds like it should be Epapatha. <laughs> but okay, so apparently it's Epapatha, okay. as if it was like a double F. <laughs> But uh, King James did a find and replace and switched all the F's for PHs. <laughs> <laughs>